0: Easter break. Everybody have a good time? Yeah, everybody glad the kids are going back to school? Amen, hallelujah. All right, here we go. Everyone but the kids that are here. Hey, I heard that. Just as a reminder, um, we started a series recently that will focus our attention upon ways to establish and to increase joy in our lives. It doesn't take a detective to observe that many, if not most people today, have very little joy in their hearts. I mean, all you gotta do is look around and see long faces and sad eyes and realize that people are looking for some hope and some direction and oftentimes they're they're led in directions that probably aren't the best thing for them in the long run and if nothing else, provide only temporary solutions to the problem. In fact, I was leafing through a magazine the other day and there was a full page uh, magazine ad that basically had a questionnaire in the midst of this particular advertisement. And they had some questions there, and they said, if you answer yes to uh, a number of the following questions, you may want to consider. And it was a product that was basically a pill that you could take to somehow or another improve your disposition in life. And had a number of questions. Do you feel tired? Do you feel depressed? Do you feel concerned or worried about things? Uh, Do you feel unduly fatigued? Are you experiencing a significant change in your sleeping patterns? And then it goes on, basically says, if you answer yes to these, you may want to consider popping this pill that we happen to be selling. I like that little footnote at the bottom that said this, though. It said, other explanations for these symptoms may need to be considered as well. Well, and, and I'm going to focus on the other explanation for these symptoms instead of, you know, you know, we live in this world that just wants to pop a pill for everything. It's a microwave generation. Just take a pill. I mean, you know, for, for years you've gained weight and it's been going on for years and years and years and years and you've got terrible eating habits and all these things are going on and now you're looking for a pill that you can pop one a day and it's going to, it's going to cure all of these problems that you have in your life. You know, you're not feeling good about yourself for one reason or another, and if you just pop a pill, you'll feel better for yourself. You know, they've got pills out now that are supposed to be smart pills. They make you smarter. I mean, it's like, it's amazing to me how many things are out there. And that's not to mention things like taking pills or doing some crack or smoking a joint or having a drink and all these things make you feel better. You know, we want everything right now. It's like the guy that, you know, I heard about that was praying, you know, it's an old prayer, God, give me patience. And I want it now! You know, that's the way we are. It's like, I want everything now. And it's important to remember as we go through this series on joy, that joy is not to be confused with the emotion of happiness. Happiness is contingent upon our circumstances. And we need to recognize the fact that what God is talking about when He refers to joy is that joy is a state of well-being. And as hard as this is for some of us to understand or appreciate, you can actually be joyful yet sad. You can be joyful and in mourning. You can be joyful in suffering and in fact as I read through the Bible I realize that as we suffer our capacity to 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 increase our joy is is greatly increased and that's a paradox and there's many things about the way God sees life as different than when we see it is a paradox to many of us how can I be joyful yet suffering how can I be joyful and yet in mourning how can I be joyful and sad I don't understand it well that's what we're going to discuss because joy is not predicated upon our circumstances whatsoever it's a state of well-being and an authentic joy also is not to be confused with this phony kind of religious, joyful, put on a happy face. You know, I've been flashing up a smiley face here every now and then, and, and, and yet on the, other, on the other hand, you know, joy should work its way out somehow. If you got joy in your heart, you sh- it should work its way to your face and maybe you could crack a smile. But I'm not talking about a phony smile and all the praise the Lord kind of a stuff that we hear. In fact, one of my favorite stories is about a country pastor that went to buy a horse, and he goes and buys this horse from a particular gentleman, and this gentleman said, hey, how do you like the horse? They worked out the deal, the pastor liked it, and said, okay, I'll take it. So he buys this horse. But the guy that he bought it from said, hey, listen, I, I want to make sure that you understand something here, and that is that this horse has grown up and was, it was raised in an environment that was a religious environment. And so if you get up on the horse and you tell the horse to giddy up, it ain't going anywhere. So the guy got up on the horse, the pastor got on the horse, said giddy up, and that horse just stood still. He said, I don't understand. What's, what, what makes the horse go? He says, well, if you say praise the Lord, the horse will go. He goes, all right. He said, but I also want to tell you that if you say whoa, the horse won't stop. You got to say amen. That's how it ends. That's how it'll stop. So his pastor's thinking, wow, this is kind of weird. He says giddy up, the horse doesn't go anywhere. And he says, okay, praise the Lord. He tries and the horse starts to go. He's going, oh, praise the Lord, and this horse starts to trot. He's going, praise the Lord. And this horse starts to fly across this particular meadow that he's going out. And he's just cruising along and he's having a great time heading back home. And he's there, praise the Lord. This horse going, 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 going. And his pastor looks up ahead and the road's washed out and there's like a 200 foot cliff ahead of him. He's going, whoa, whoa, stop, oh! stop, whoa. And then he remembers, Amen. And the horse stops right as he gets to the cliff. And out of fours of habit, he goes, praise the Lord. And, and, you know, and see, some of us are like that. You know, we say this flipping little praise the Lord, you know, oh, praise the Lord. You ever met somebody like, oh, praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise Jesus, praise the Lord. You know, and you meet people like this, and it's just, you got to go, what, I mean, is it real, is it not real? I mean, is this authentic or not? I'm not saying there are people that are like that or like that that are authentic, but I think some of us have gotten into a force of habit that we think that we should say these things, but we don't really know why. Now, I want you to stop and think about that story for a second. <laughs> Amen means that's the end of it. All right. Giddy up. So anyway, if you got your Bibles, let's take a look at what we've learned so far as uh, we take a look at the book of Philippians. Is what we're studying. It's a letter that has to do specifically at, at, with a recurring theme of joy all throughout it. And in the book of Philippians, the first chapter we started the last time we were together, and I want to kind of update us so we can pick up where we left off and run from there. Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 1, we read this. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day even until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are partakers of grace with me. He says, for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this particular section, we saw that, you know what, joy, and I want you to understand something here. You know, I'm knocking the fact that we live in an instant generation that's looking for instant cure, but yet I also want you to realize something. As untrue as that is in every other area of life, there's one particular truth that we cannot get away from, and that is this, that God changes people in an instant in time. God can change a person in an instant in time. Instantaneously. What Paul is saying, that joy is a choice and it begins with our choice of believing God and what He says about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God says, I've loved you so much I've sent you My Son that whoever will believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God says if you receive Him or believe Him, that I will give you eternal life instantly. You will be, quote, born again instantly. You will go from being dead spiritually to alive spiritually instantly. You will be put into the body of believers or baptized, the Bible says, into a body of believers instantly. He says that you will be an old person. All things pass away. All things will become new instantly. See, this happens in a moment in time. And it begins with a choice that says I'm going to choose to believe that or I'm going to choose not to believe that. But God allows us the choice, but He gives us the opportunity to choose and He also is the one who makes it real to us so that we can see what He's saying is true and hear what He's saying and understand it. So it's not really even our choice so much as we, re- we respond to God's prodding in this area and He's saying, hey Chuck, have you in a moment in time believed what I said about Jesus Christ? I'm not saying have you heard it in your head, have you come to church, have you gone to Bible studies, have you done these things, but you in your own heart have you said, you know what, that's something I've never done, I've heard it all, but it's time that I believe Him now, I believe you God in what you say. And in a moment in time you're forgiven of your sin for all of eternity. In a moment of time you're given eternal life for all of eternity. In a moment of time, the Spirit of God comes to live within you as a down payment, Ephesians 1 says, for all eternity, so that his Spirit will ta- He will take back His Spirit to Himself. Jesus said, where I go, I prepare a place for you. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that. But in a moment of time, you will be changed. In a moment of time, you'll become a child of God. See, joy starts with making that choice. And the Bible says that we become adopted as children to a father. In Romans 8, it says that now we can call God Dad. Not in a flippant, uh, you know, flippant casual way like so many people think, but in a way that begins an intimate relationship where now we can approach the God of the universe on a personal one-to-one relationship saying that, you know what, I can come to Him as my dad. And some of us don't understand that because we didn't have very good earthly fathers. We didn't have very good earthly role models. We don't know what it means to be able to approach a dad in confidence and know that he loves us and cares for us and we can communicate with him. And so many of us are messed up because of that. We have a very skewed position of God. We don't understand God because of that. But what God is saying is that in a moment of time, for those who receive Christ, they become a child of God to those who believe in his name. And now we can go to God and we can call him father or dad. We become adopted. Now listen to this. This is how this works. And this is the illustration that God gives. He takes it as as an adoption. He's saying that you are not a part of my family. You are outside of my family. But I want to offer you this gift of becoming a part of my family. And I want to adopt you. All you have to do is believe what I say about Jesus. And then I will adopt you into my family. Now some of you will sit there and think, you know what, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, there's got to be more to it, there's a trick to it, I've got to perform, I've got to do things, but if you've ever seen a person who's adopted another human being, you know exactly what's going on. We have people in this group that have adopted children, and those children had to do nothing but accept the fact that this couple wanted to love them and bring them into their family. And it's a confusing thing. And you think there's got to be something up and I've got to be able to do something. But the reality of all of it is, it's a person who loves another person that says, you don't have to do anything for me. I've done everything for you. All you've got to do is believe that, receive that, and now you're part of my family. And so the moment you do that, you become part of God's family. And that's where joy begins. And now you've got a foundation. And I'll guarantee you this, if you've ever been adopted by someone, you don't really understand this relationship fully the moment those papers are signed and you go home to live with that person. It takes a long time to develop that relationship and to develop the trust and the communication and to open up with one another and to feel the freedom to understand that, you know what, I am adopted. I have all the rights. I have all the privileges of every other child in this family. This is a wonderful truth. And I also have responsibilities. But that's not predicated on whether a person will adopt you or not. That's just part of being in the family. So what God is saying is that when you believe in Christ, you become a part of God's family. He adopts you as a child but then he also says that you know what that's where joy begins but that's the foundation and now he wants to help us understand how that joy will grow and that's what the book of Philippians is all about how we can expand the joy that God has already given us and the first thing that we saw was this and that is that that Paul to expand the joy in his life and this relationship that he had with God you see what he says they were bondservants of Christ to all those saints that are in Christ in Philippi He says, grace to you, that's God's gift. When you receive God's gift, then you have peace in your heart as well. Peace with God, peace with uh, one another, peace even with yourself. He says, grace from God and peace through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. The first thing that he did to expand upon this joy in his life was he had good memories of the people that he's writing to. We already discussed the fact that, you know what, a lot of terrible things happened to the Apostle Paul when he was in Philippi. He was beaten. He was put into prison unjustly. He was arrested by people that had no right arresting him. He was chained to a guard. He was left there overnight. I mean, there were a lot of negative things that happened, but you know what he chose to do? He chose to expand upon the joy in his life by dwelling on good memories. So many of us are miserable in life because we're dwelling on the negative things that have happened in our past. And he said, I'm not going to dwell on that. When he looked at Philippi, here's what he saw. You know what? Ten years later they're still going strong this church that we started 10 years ago under those circumstances was still going strong when I look back on the people I see the life lives that God has changed he remembered Lydia this purple uh, this maker of fabric and her family and all the people that were at the river at the river and, and that believed in Christ and he remembered all of these people with great joy in his heart he said, you know what, I remembered even the time that they had to come and get me out of prison. Wasn't that a hoot? Wasn't that funny? I made them come and get me and apologize before everybody. That was hilarious. That was pretty funny. So he remembered all these things. He had good memories of the people. The second thing he also had was a firm confidence in God. Look at verse 6. I'm confident of this very thing. He had this settled effect in his heart. It was like his, you know, he was saying in his own life once and for all, that you know what, I believe this with all my heart that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I want to share something with you. It's personal. something that that I'm struggling with in my own life and I realized it as I've studied this and things have gone on in my life around me. And that is that I have settled in my heart that God can do anything He wants with my life. I've known that in my head. Apostle Paul is saying, Chuck, I knew in my head that God was in control. I've known in my head for a long time that it's His will will be done and not mine. I've known that for a long time but he never really settled it in his heart until he was beaten several times, he was thrown in prison a few times, he was left for dead a couple times, he was shipwrecked, you know he went through all these things and as a result with the word and having become convinced of this or I am confident of this, what it's saying is that you know what I knew this in my head and now it's finally a settled issue in in my heart. Now I've settled that issue with God in my heart as far as my own life but one thing that God's teaching me is I haven't settled that issue in my heart as far as God's dealings with my wife and my children. I don't know if any of you struggle with that or not, but God is really revealing that to me in some interesting ways. But I realize that because, you know what? Settling is the opposite of unsettled. When something happens to one of my children, I'm very unsettled about it. It churns at my stomach. I get an upset stomach about it. It almost drives me crazy to the point where I can't sleep. And I wrestle with it, and probably even more than they wrestle with it, and I'm learning that. And see, what's happening is that God's saying, yeah, Chuck, you've got that dealt with in your life. I can do anything I want with you and you've got that much pretty much a settled issue but you see I'm at work in your children's life I'm at work in your wife's life I'm at work in your friend's life and you know what you're staying up at night and this is churning you and it's driving you crazy and it's killing you and you know what it is it's the exact opposite of what it means to be settled in your heart about the fact that I'm in control wow you talk about just getting slapped upside your face and I realized the first time that that was true and it was like talk about choosing joy it was a matter of saying Lord you know what I gotta choose to believe that you're in control in every area of life. Whether it's business or church or family or children or health or whatever it is. And you know what's an amazing thing? You talk about a peace that you have when you finally settled that with God in your heart. See, there's no more churning anymore. There's no more restlessness anymore. You can have a peace and it almost breaks out into that little cocky smile that you have on your face because you know that you know what? God's doing something here. And he loves my children more than I ever will, and I keep forgetting that they're not mine anyway, that I'm just a steward or manager. They're actually his kids. See how we forget this stuff? And I was like, man, it was a, what a great revelation it was. And, and what a great, you know, what great peace it can come over you when you realize, you know what? I am confident of this. I have become confident of this. It's a settled issue in my life once and for all that he who began a good work in my children and in my wife and in my friends wow. and in myself will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You know the word complete? Didn't get a chance to mention to you, but just as a side note, just so that you know, the word complete actually is the same word that Jesus used, which we translate into a phrase in English when he was hanging on the cross and he said this, it is finished. Wow. The same word is complete. It's done. It's done. See, it's already done, even though we don't seem to think that it's happened yet. It's already done. That he who began that work in you the day that you received Christ or believed in him will perfect that work or complete that work. Just as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing you need to do. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can add to it. It's a done deal. And the way you'll know it's done is when Christ comes back and you're with him. The way you'll know it's done is when you die and you go to heaven and you're with him. That's how you'll know for sure that it's done. But the bottom line is we can know other ways and we're going to talk about that. It's a settled issue. It's as if Paul was saying, you know what, I have finally realized and God used me to write these words. But you know what? I really do believe that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. It's a settled issue in my heart. Number three, he said he's also involved in the lives of others. Look what he says. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. For God is my witness, in verse 8, for I, I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. He's saying, you know, another way to increase the joy in your life, not only should you have good memories and dwell on those, and not only should you settle this issue in your heart that God who began this work will complete it, but the third thing is that we also need to be involved in the lives of other people. He's saying, I had you in my heart. You know, I've got you constantly in my mind. I've got you constantly in my thoughts. I've got you constantly in my, in my prayers. You've become a part of my life. And many of us haven't entered into that level of relationship at all. In fact, uh, I like this book, John Powell's book, Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am. There's a section in the book, that if you ever get this book, that deals with this whole aspect of intimacy and communication. And let me just share five levels that he shares of communication or how to become involved in the lives of others. He says level five is the outer circle of superficiality. It's the level that we call cliché conversation. Says on this level we talk in cliches such as how are you, how's your family, where have you been? We say things like "I I like your dress very much, nice hairstyle, I hope we can get together real soon, it's really good to see you. Which might really mean we may not see each other for a year and I'm not going to sweat it. I like that. He says, in the other, and he says, if the other party were to begin answering our questions, how are you in detail, we would be astounded. Usually, unfortunately, the other per- person senses the superficiality and, and just of our concern and question and obliges by simply giving the standard a- answer. Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine too. Good, good to see you. So you move on from there. That's cliche communication. He says, level four is where we begin reporting facts. We remain contented to tell others what so-and-so has said or done. We offer no personal self-revelatory commentary on these facts, but we just simply report the facts. That's kind of the gossip, petty, meaningless little tales about others. And level three goes into the areas of ideas and judgments, and rarely do people communicate on this level, he says. He says, as I communicate my ideas, I'll be watching you carefully. I want to test the temper- temperature of the water before I leap in. I want to be sure that you accept my ideas and judgments and decisions. If you raise your eyebrows or narrow your eyes or if you yawn or you look at your watch, I'll probably retreat to safer ground. I'll run for the cover of silence or change the subject of conversation. Have you ever been there with a the person you're trying to develop a relationship with and you try to ask those type of questions and all of a sudden, they start talking to someone else. I mean, I mean it's like, you go, know, hello. You know, you look, and it's like, you know, what, what am I, did I disappear? I mean, it's like, it's like, okay, we got a good idea where this is going, I ain't going anywhere. I like it on the superficial level, thank you very much. He goes on and says, level two moves into the feeling level. If I really want you to know who I am, I must tell you something, get level about myself, about my ideas and judgments, decisions. He says, if I'm a Republican or a Democrat, by persuasion, I have a lot of company. For if, if I'm... Uh, against or for space exploration. There will be others who will support me in my conviction, but the feelings that lie under my ideas, judgments, and convictions are uniquely mine. This is the way I feel about why I'm telling you what I'm telling you. And we begin to share that. He says, I would hazard to guess that only 10% of us ever communicate on that type of level. He says, uh, also to my disappointment, I've discovered that husbands and wives can live for years under the same roof without even reaching this level. He says in level one, the most intimate form of communication, he says, all deep and authentic friendships and especially the union of those who are married must be based on absolute openness and honesty. Among close friends or even between partners in marriage, there will come time, from time to time a complete emotional and personal communion. And I really believe as I look at what we're about to study that the Apostle Paul seemed to practice this on a regular basis a depth to his communication with other people, and not only does it bring satisfaction, but it expands and increases the joy capacity that we have in our life. And so as we look at these next two verses, in verses 9 through 11, I want to share with you some things that I think will help expand the joy in many of our lives, and that is the fact he says this. And this is what I pray. He says that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. It says, having been filled with the righteous fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always know how to pray for others. Because when we are at this level of communication with one another, and we are open and transparent with one another, one of the natural things that will occur as far as expanding joy in our life is we're going to have an opportunity to hear of needs in another person's life and be in a position to say, I'll pray for you. And that's how we get past all the superficial stuff. Somebody says, hi, how you doing? And you say, fine. It's like, well, I don't know. Is there a need or is there a problem? Is there anything we need to pray about? Well, there's nothing there. You can't really do anything. But to develop your relationship, what naturally begins to happen is, hey, I'm aware of something going on in your life. And now, you know what? Since I believe that God answers prayer, I'd like to pray for you in that area. I don't always know how to pray for people. I'm going to be just flat out front with you. And I'll tell you why. Because I know people who have marriage problems. I know people that are having, you know, educational problems and athletic problems and health problems and all kinds of problems. And when you know them intimately, you know that all these things exist and this is what's going on. They're having business problems and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, they'll say, will you pray for me? And I'll say, yeah, but I'm thinking in my head, but I don't even know how. And I'll tell you why. Because what I'll usually pray is that whatever it is that's upsetting you, I'll pray it goes away, right? I mean, that just seems natural to me. you having problems in business, I pray those problems go away. Have problems in your marriage, I pray everything works out and they go away. It gets better. Having health problems, you got a little thing on you, I pray it falls off. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. You know, I just kind of do that. And then I got a headache because then I began to realize, you know what, though? But see, God may have a different plan of why you're going through what you're going through. See, and then I start feeling really stupid, but then I don't feel too stupid because the disciples were just as stupid as we are. Because they went to Jesus one day and said, we don't know how to pray, show us how, teach us how. And he said, okay, listen, our Father is heart in heaven. Our Father, that intimate close relationship, heart in heaven, that's where he's at. Uh, holy is his name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. Then I began to realize, you know what? God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So now I'm stuck praying for someone. I don't know what really God's will is for them in their life in this particular situation. And now I got a headache. And then somebody comes to me and says, uh, we would really like to pray for you. And I said, great, go ahead. I said, "Was there anything we can pray about?" Said, "I don't know. You know, I you know I'm like a total moron or a maroon. (laughs) It's like I, I don't know." And so, if you've ever struggled with that, you're not alone. And fortunately, there's some help here. All right, let me just share with you in this particular section how to pray for others and have their joy and your joy increased. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I look at this and go, thank you, Lord, for this. Because I have felt like a moron for 20 years since I have accepted Christ or believed in Jesus. And I have really not ever known how to pray for someone that made any sense other than I'm just doing my best. And what God is saying is this. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. There's four things that he prays. Actually, it's only one. But as we look at this, for the sake of of, um, study that makes a little more clarity, I'm going to break it out into four things. And and these are four things that that we can be praying for others that will increase joy in their life. Look at number one. You want to pray for another person? You want somebody to pray for you? Then ask them to pray this. Hey, you know what? Pray for an abundance of love in my life. Philippians 1.9, it says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. I like that. New American Standard says, and this I pray. What he's saying is continually, the Apostle Paul continually was in prayer for other people. Isn't that interesting? See, I'll tell you what, as we pray for other people and other people are continually in our prayers, it can't help but increase the joy in our life as we see what God's doing in their life as a result of whether it's our prayers or others' prayers. But the Bible does say this, "The, the fervent prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. That God answers prayer. Paul knew that, and he smiled as he prayed for them and realized that, you know what? As I'm praying for you, I see the evidence that God is answering this prayer. And it just makes that joy in my heart come out to my face, and I can't help but smile. See, if you want to pray for someone, pray this. Pray for an abundance of love. The Bible says that we should pray without ceasing, that men ought also always to pray and not to faint. We should pray for an abundance of love in the lives of others. And you know, and, and what's interesting about that is, is that as we look at this, look how it should, he says, and this I pray that your love, what? May abound still more and more. What we pray is that God, you know what? I want to pray for an abundance of love in this person's life so that their love will touch other people's lives And as they touch other people's lives, they will love others and that love will abound more and more. It's like a ripple effect. It's like throwing a rock in the water. When I love you and my love abounds for you and and that love becomes contagious and you turn to people that are in your life and you love them, that love just keeps going on and on and on and on. And he's saying that that's what I'm praying. I'm praying that your love will be abundant for the people around you, that you will reach out and you will love people. And you know what? Jesus did say this. He said, you know, talking about his, his false believers, he says, that, you know what? People are going to know that you're my disciples, what? By your love for one another. See, love is a signature of all of those who have entered into right relationship with God. You, you know, people will know us. They'll know, you know, like the song, they'll know we're Christians by our love. Love for one another. There's an abundance of love there that ripples on and on and on and on and on. But what he's saying also, and where we run into a problem is this, you know, we can't go wrong when we pray that others would abound in their love for others. But I also know this, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the name of love, and there's different expressions and interpretations of it that have nothing to do with what love, God says is love. You know, someone, someone come to me and say, You mean to tell me that I can actually love people in the wrong way? I say, Absolutely. He says, well, yeah, but doesn't God know my heart and know the sincerity of my love and that I really want to love a person, I really want to help a person? and Doesn't God understand and know that? Well, sure he does. He knows that. But it's also possible to love people or express love for people in a way that's wrong before God. You know, I, I was watching the Academy Awards and one of the best songs that were nominated this past year was a song for the movie Don Juan DeMarco. You know, I'm watching this clip, and I'm, and I'm sitting there thinking about this, but, you know, the song goes on when a man loves a woman, and it's talking about, you know, how a man should love a woman, but this particular guy, like, had about 50 of them. And it would go from scene to scene to scene to scene to scene to scene to scene, and all it was talking about were the, ex, the sexual exploits of this man and all the different women in his life, all under the, the, the banner of, well, this man was loving these women. You go, wait a minute, is that really what love's all about? You often hear people say, and especially kids, younger people, will say, "Well, if you, if you love me, you'll what? You'll do what I want you to do. You know, they'll come up to a parent, well, if you love me, you'll give me a car. If you love me, you'll give me this, you'll give me that, you'll give me that. You know, and they, that's how they date. If you love me, you'll give me this. You know, it's like the Bud commercial. I love you, man. Well, what's he saying? You know, and the whole thing is, that, hey, oh, I love you, man. And it all comes back to, I'm not giving you what you want. You're just saying that because you want something. So, you know, and I hear people, especially Christians, and let me just tell you one thing, and let's clarify this once and for all. And I hear this, and I want you to listen carefully, but I hear this. Well, if I'm going to make a mistake, I want to make a mistake on the side of love rather than on the side of being judgmental. You go, huh? Well, I want to make a mistake on the side of being too gracious, too graceful, too loving, instead of being too judgmental. Now, the key to what you said is this. If I'm going to make a mistake, hello, anybody home today? (laughs) Well, why do you want to make a mistake? Why do you want to be content on making a mistake? Why isn't an option somewhere in our vocabulary, I want to do what's right? Why is it always if I'm going to make a mistake? Well, you don't have to make a mistake. and just do the right thing. Second Corinthians 5, that's what the church of Corinth was saying about the guy who was having sex with his stepmother. They're saying, if I'm going to make a mistake, we're going to love and accept him. It's okay. We all love each other. Kumbaya, hold hands. You know, light a candle, float it down a river on a leaf. What? It's like, what are you saying? Why don't you just do the right thing? You know, it kills me. I just, it drives me nuts. Wrong is still wrong, but what's the guidelines for love? Here we go, number one, you ready? This is a guideline for abundant love, number one. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in what? In knowledge. It says, real knowledge. You know what knowledge is? Knowledge is what God says is right and wrong knowledge is what God says is right or wrong it's not artificial it's not artificial knowledge it's not phony information it's not some man's opinion some woman's opinion that changes with time it's not what you pick up in a bookstore or read in Cosmo or whatever it is it's none of those things real knowledge is real knowledge it's what God says is right or wrong our love should be guided by truth because it's truth that'll set us free you know there are ways to express quote, love that are just flat out wrong before God. You see it and you hear it all the time. You see singles that are having sex outside of marriage, but we love each other. Well, not the way God says, because that's a wrong expression of love. I see guys who leave their wives or wives who leave their husbands and leave their children because they love someone else. Well, let me just tell you something. Real knowledge would guide that love that you have and would say that that is wrong before God. That's a wrong expression of love, and that's not love at all. It's lust. And we go on and on. You know, there are times where we express love in a wrong way. Is it really loving to contribute to the laziness of a child? Is it loving to contribute to an addiction of someone in your family, whether it's an alcohol or drug addiction or whatever it is? Is that really loving? Let me tell you something about love. Love that's guided by real knowledge is guided by the Word of God, and the Word of God says that the truth will set people free. And we need to recognize that. I'll give you an example. In this past Super Bowl, the Pittsburgh Steelers played the Dallas Cowboys. And, you know, in their 6,000 hours of pregame coverage that they usually have, they can find all kinds of things to discuss and and to try to talk about. And and one particular thing that they talk about made a real impact into this particular area, and that is this. There was a quarterback who played for the Steelers when we lived back in Pittsburgh in the early 70s. His name was uh, Joe Gillum. They called him Jefferson Street Joe Gillum. Terry Bradshaw was being interviewed and Bradshaw ended up leading the Steelers to four four Super Bowl victories, but anyway, he was being interviewed and he said this, he said he had never met an athlete in his life who frightened him as much as Joe Gillum did. He said through grade school, high school, college, and into the pros, he had never had anybody compete with him at the level that Joe Gillum could compete. He said it was the first time in his life that he was ever afraid that he was going to lose a starting position because this man was mentally better than he was and he was athletically more gifted than he was. He was scared to death. And sure enough, Joe Gillum started for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He played one season, he played one and a half seasons, but Joe had a problem and he liked to party. Coach Chuck Null said, Joe, I know you like to have a good time and I know you like to party. He said, but let me give you a little counsel, a little advice, son. He said, you're going to party yourself right out of this league. Within a year after that conversation, he was off the Steelers. His reputation was out in the league, and it is an interesting reputation, little grapevine system that they've got, that he was bad news, that he was trouble, that he was a partier, and he was out of professional football. They found Joe Gillum living in Nashville, Tennessee. This is 15 years after this particular event took place. He was living underneath a railroad bridge, living on the streets. He was a heroin junkie. For the last 15 years, he was a drug addict. And they interviewed him about all the things that went wrong in his life. And it all went back to all this stuff. He liked to party, he liked to have a good time, he liked to run around with the women, he liked to just, you know, live it up. And he recognized all these things. And he had been from one rehab place to the next to the next, and now he's living out on the streets. And that's where he was at the end of the interview. They brought him in the hotel room. They let him clean up a little bit. They interviewed him there. And then when the interview was over, he left and he went back to walk the streets of Nashville, Tennessee. But the footnote of all of it, and the important thing that I want to get across to you is this, that the guy who did the interview for NBC made it very clear, and this is what he said. He said that, you know what? For those of you who are feeling sorry for Joe Gillum, let me just share this with you. He has countless numbers of friends, and he has countless numbers of family members who have offered him help throughout his life and they are standing on the sidelines waiting to help him again when he chooses to be helped wow what is he saying see God is saying that we need to pray for the love of others that it would abound still more and more but that that love would be guided by real knowledge the truth about what God says will help another person you know and the second thing that he says and also depth of insight the word is discernment the word means to know the difference between right or wrong it means that God wants my love for you and people in my life to abound still more and more and to touch the lives and the hearts of people God wants that in my life he wants it in your life we need to pray for that in each other's lives but he's saying this, but Chuck, it's, it's, a, it's a love that is guided by real knowledge. Knowledge of what is right or wrong according to what God says. And also real discernment, meaning that you'll know the difference between right and wrong. See, we've got a whole bunch of people in the world today that are doing a whole bunch of things in the name of love that, aren't lo- that isn't love at all. It's not guided by knowledge of what's right or wrong, and it's not guided by real discernment as far as moral perception of what God says is right or wrong. I'll give you an illustration of it. Would it be right for a person to say, I love you so much, I'll kill for you. I love you so much, I'll rob a bank for you. I love you so much, I'll lie and cheat and steal for you. I love you so much, like a a news uh, story that I saw a couple weeks ago, I love you so much, son, that we'll send you money and we'll let you live in Europe until your passport expires ten years from now and you're on the run because you're up for two rape charges and I love you so much that I'm going to support you in your escape from the law. And the whole whole news story focused on the fact that, well, what would you do if you were a parent? Wouldn't you do this if you loved your child? Wow. Talk about ripping your heart up. See, talk about making you really go through some, you know, gymnastics here and justification and rationalization. What he's saying is, I love you so much, wouldn't you you do that for your own child? And that was the plea that the parents made as they were talking to the audience. Is that moral discernment? Is that right or wrong? Is wrong still wrong regardless of the circumstances and the situation? See, if you want your joy to increase, you need to have love, and abundance of love that is guided by knowledge of right and wrong, and discernment as far as what is right or wrong. I know many people in our culture are struggling with a whole bunch of things. We've got kids that are struggling with uh, parents who are living with boyfriends and girlfriends. We've got people that are struggling, we've got parents that are struggling with boyfriends and girlfriends having sex with one another and trying in every way they can to make them somehow or another safe in this process. We've got people that are struggling trying to do things that are wrong before God in ways that just aren't right and they're never going to be right and you can't make a wrong right if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. And that's what love guided by real knowledge and discernment will help you to see. I'll give you an example. I've got a friend and, I lo- and he's got the biggest heart in the world. This friend of mine got the biggest heart and every person that comes into his life he feels like he can help them and he wants to love them and he wants to share the love of God that God has shared in his life. And he had a guy come to him and he wanted to paint his house want to do some painting for him. And as he began to talk to him and share with him, he realized that, you know, this guy looked like this guy had a drinking problem. And sure enough, it turned out that he did. He had a drinking problem. And he called me and said, Chuck, you know, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm really struggling with what to do here. I want to share the love of God with this man, and yet I know that he's got this problem, and I'm not really sure how to handle it. See, so he was praying for discernment. I, I need to know what, what's the right thing to do in this situation. How do I handle all of this? And so we tried to help him and he had him paint his house and he did a fairly decent job and he gave him money and he tried to refer him to some neighbors. He was trying to get this man up off off the ground on his feet. So he went to a neighbor and said, hey, this guy did a fairly decent job, whatever, and so the guy went over to the neighbor's house, the lady gave him a $300 deposit to come back and paint the house and she never saw him again. So she went to my buddy and said, hey, listen, you know what, this guy you referred me to took the money and I haven't seen him back. And so he went to him and said, what's going on? And the guy said, well, I spent it all drinking. And the thing I love about my friend and how God is using his life and he's grown in his life is that he went to the neighbor and said, I'm really sorry that I referred you to him. And he took your money and he spent it. And I'll give you the $300 out of my own pocket because I feel an obligation to you. But he lost $300 in the process and he was really con- concerned and confused about the whole thing. See, and, and what I try to share with him is the same thing I'm trying to share with you. And that is, you know what? We need our love to abound more and more, but in real knowledge and discernment, and that is simply this. There are going to be people who come into our life that we can help and we can love and God can use us to help and and, and make a difference in their life. And there are going to be people that come into our life who are just flat out liars, cheats, thieves. They're manipulators. and They're going to twist a knife in your back as quick as they can. And these are the people that usually say to you stuff like this. And you say you're a Christian. Oh, what kind of Christian are you? Well, hello, I'm a Christian that doesn't have, stamp, have stamped idiot on my forehead. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, what kind of Christian are you? What, 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 see, that what they're trying to imply is that you're supposed to help everybody because we know what Christians are about. They're supposed to just give to anybody to ask anything. And God says, no, they're not. Listen to this story. Cynthia was watching her favorite Christian television show one afternoon when a well-dressed man carrying a Bible rang her doorbell saying he saw the symbols of her faith on her window and car bumper and was trying to make friends with fellow Christians in the neighborhood. After discussing the Bible for a few minutes, she invited the man into her Santa Ana condominium for iced tea. Once inside, the stranger threw his Bible on a chair, grabbed her from behind, and viciously raped her. When he finished, he dressed, picked up his Bible, and said, praise the Lord, as he walked out. What's the lesson? See, the lesson is this. If you want to have joy in your life, then that joy will be extended when we love one another and that love is abundant, but it's also love that's guided with real knowledge and with real discernment. Every day there are people that are going to come into your life that you can help and there are going to people that come into your life that are going to try to hurt you every way they can. And that's just the way it is. And so that our love doesn't grow callous and cold for one another, God says it should be guided by real knowledge of what is right and wrong. It should also be guided by discernment of knowing the difference. And I'll tell you this. Let's just close on this, and that's simply this. You know what? Make this your prayer every day. Lord, today, there are going to be people you bring into my life who you want me to share your love with. You want that love to abound still more and more. You want me to have an impact on these people's lives and I know if I have an impact on them, they'll have an impact on someone else and on and on it'll go. Lord, when I get up today, when I, since, I get, since I did get up today, that's a good way to start, <laughs> is that you're going to be pre- people in my life that I can help and you're going to be people in my life that are just going to flat out try to rip me off. They're going to try to lie, cheat, steal, manipulate me because they know I'm a Christian. Say, God, all I want you to do is you give me the wisdom and the discernment to know the difference between the two. That's all. And the ones that I help give me the strength to help. And the ones that are trying to hurt me give me the freedom to get away from them. And that's all you could ask. But you want to pray for someone and you want to see joy in someone's life, I'll tell you what, when you see people loving people in a way that's guided by real knowledge and discernment, it can't help but put a smile back on your face. We'll finish next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to just take a look at this one thing, if nothing else, and that is that uh, you want us to love people, but not in a foolish way, not in a way that's going to hurt us or our families, not in a way that will hurt us even financially or destroy our life. But you want us to love people in a way that uh, is right before you. In real knowledge, the knowledge of truth as far as what is right or wrong. And in real discernment, being able to tell the difference between what is wrong and what is right, what is counterfeit and what is authentic. God, there are people in our life every day that we can help. There are people that are going to try to hurt us. God, just help us to know the difference between the two. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.